Father, I ask for your help now as we undertake to complete this first chapter of Romans. I ask for a sacred anointing upon me as I open my mouth to try to exposit verse 32. I pray for these brothers and sisters and friends here who are called upon now to listen to the Word of God and to seek to hear with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and to love you and to let these things be upon their heart as we are commanded to do in the fighter verse for this week. Let these things which I command you this day be upon your heart. Oh God, make that happen. Now I pray, and for any unbelievers in our midst, I pray that they would be sweetly opened like a flower to the sun of your truth and your love and your power. So draw near, Lord, and make this an immeasurable moment in the life of this church, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll read verses 28 to 32 again, like we did last week. Only we'll focus this time on verse 32. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So, in one sense, verse 32 brings the chapter to a close with a very bleak view of human nature and a very deep indictment of what becomes of us when we are given over by God to worse and worse sinfulness. Keep in mind the phrase, in one sense this is what happens. Because I'm coming back eventually to give another sense to these words Besides that bleak one, hidden beneath this terrible, bleak assessment of what we are like apart from grace is a very hopeful word in this verse. So that's where I want to end up, but it will take a few minutes to get there. What's so bleak about this verse is that the last half says that... We not only do the things that we know deserve death, 
but we get others to do them with us and like it when they do. So we not only have a suicidal love affair with sin, we have a murderous love affair with getting people to join us in suicide. We all become Dr. Kevorkians who spiritually want people dead with us. Spiritually, eternally. Now there's a lot of things in America today that would point to this. Let me give you one illustration. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love, I mean, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. In other words, Jesus taught us, and we now know, (coughs) that if you give up the fight with lust and surrender yourselves into a life of lust, you will go to hell. So now what conclusion can we draw from that teaching when you put verse 32 of Romans 1 beside it? What shall we say in America when not only do millions upon millions of people drink the arsenic of pornography day in and day out, killing themselves eternally, but tens of thousands of people make their living helping them do it? What shall we say of those people? who devote all their time and all their energy to helping people commit everlasting spiritual suicide. What shall we say of them? Last year, February 10, 1997, in U.S. News & World Report, there was an article by Eric Schlosser about pornography. And here are a couple of awesome statistics. The business of pornography in America is so successful that there are news trade journals. You know, every, every trade has a journal. And uh, there are X-rated trade journals. And one of them named um, Adult Video News reported that in 1985, 75 million videos, X-rated videos, were sold or rented in America, which jumped in 1996 to 665 million. About $8 billion is spent on pornography in America every year. And just to, to put it in balance, he gave this analogy. He said, if you take all the money spent on Broadway productions, regional nonprofit theaters, opera, ballet, jazz, and classical music performances, all of that money in America does not come close to the money spent on strip clubs alone. 
Not to mention videos, not to mention theaters, not to mention magazines, not to mention the Internet. So now in view of what Jesus said about the eternal peril of a life given over to lust, what this amounts to is not only the fact that multiplied millions of people are killing themselves forever, spiritually, on lust, but that tens of thousands of people are making their living, luring others into it and being happy, really happy, when they are sucked in. That's what Paul says in verse 32 is the bottom of the spiral. Not only do we commit the suicide of spiritual sin, but we, we love it when others join us, especially if it makes us money. So if you ever think that America is on the mend or that things are going well, you need to get educated. Because here in our own city, the pornography business is absolutely staggering in its size. It's just not the thing people make news about usually. Now, I said in one sense this verse is bleak. In another sense, it is full of hope, and I want to move towards this hope by walking you through three observations about this verse and then unfolding the hope the hope with regard to your loved ones who are not believers the hope with regard to Muslims and Jewish people that we care about and love the hope with regard to world evangelization the hope with regard to apologetics and the giving of a reason for the hope that is in us this verse is really full of remarkable hope and I'll get there in a minute. But let's take these three observations. Number one. The first observation is to compare verse 32 to verses 18 and 19. And notice that the knowledge that everybody has of God includes the knowledge of his standards and what we deserve if we don't keep them. Now let's go back to verses 18 and 19. And I'll try to show you this. It says in verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So what he's saying there, and we've seen this, all human beings know God. It's an amazing statement. That which can be known about God is evident to them or evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Go right on into verse 20 and 21 and read it again. We know God. Whether you've ever heard of the Bible, you know God. Whether you've ever lived in this Bible-saturated country, people know God. Now what verse 32 adds to this is that this knowledge includes 
the standards of God, the righteous ordinance of God, that those who do the kinds of sins in verses 29 to 31 deserve death. Let's read it. They know the ordinance of God. You see that in verse 32? They know the ordinance of God. This is a general sweeping statement about human beings. They know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. So whether they have any special revelation, whether they have ever heard of the Bible, they know both God, that He's eternal, that He's glorious, that He's powerful, and that He's beneficent. Those four things at least are included in the knowledge of God in verses 18 to 21. And now we know that this God has standards, some of which are mentioned in verses 19 to 31, and we know, everybody knows, that to do those things deserves death. That is an amazing teaching. And we'll come back to its implications. Here's observation number two. This knowledge means that people, everybody, are without excuse, not only for the way they treat God, but for the way they treat each other. Now, with regard to the way they treat God, look at verse 20 and 21. At the end of verse 20, it says, They are without excuse... For, here's the reason they're without excuse before God, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks. So they treated Him very badly. People ignore God, or they defame God, or they blaspheme God. They don't give God two seconds of their day. Yet, says, they are without excuse because they knew God. Now, come down to verse 32. And you'll see the same teaching, this time with regard to the way we treat each other. Although they knew, or although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, nevertheless, they do them, and they approve of those who do them. So we know that the doing of such things is worthy of death. So we're without excuse. We know the penalty is death and it is fitting. It is worthy of death. There is no excuse, according to this verse, in the heart of any man. And there's one other thing that needs to be added here to this particular observation, this second observation lest we draw wrong inference from verse 28. Remember verse 28, 26, 24, all of them said, God gave them over to a depraved mind, to do things which are not proper. And then those things are listed, 21 of them, in verses 29 to 31. We are given over by God. So I said last week, and I'll say it again, the strip shows, the porno theaters, the internet pornography... The literature is not just worthy of judgment, it is judgment. He has given this country over in huge measure to what Amy sang about up here, the void of greed, the void of lust, 
The heart is a huge void made for God and we fill it with garbage. Trying desperately to fill the void. Why do people give themselves up to lust? Because they have no passions? They give themselves up to lust and money and power because they have turned their back, or as verse 30, 28 says, they have decided they don't want God in their knowledge anymore. And God now gives them over to the... <laughs> Last week I said, swamp they have chosen. And one of you emailed me and said... It's really taffy. And I said, I'll say that this week. It's really taffy. You're sinking in taffy. Swamps don't taste good, so the analogy isn't quite as good as taffy. People are dying of suffocation as they go down into their taffy. That's right. Because we have given God away and don't want him in, he gives us away. And our strip joints and our bondage to the internet and our magazines and our X-rated videos are judgment. They are judgment. But the point I'm making here is that does not alleviate our accountability. That's my point. Verse 32 is added to verse 28. Lest anybody say, oh, he's handing me over to these things. It's not my fault anymore. Wrong. Because verse 32 says, they know that the things that they sink into deeper and deeper and deeper are worthy of death. They don't get less deserving of death because you go deeper. They get more deserving of death because you go deeper. If you still have any ounce of resistance left in you, gouge out your eye and save your soul. Third observation. There is a real knowing beneath conscious knowing. Now this is puzzling. And it's an inference I draw from this text by necessity. Because I know that there are many people who would read verse 32 where it says... They know the ordinances of God, or they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice these kinds of things that he just mentioned are worthy of death. And they would say, I don't know that. In fact, I don't even believe there is such a God. I frankly believe in evolution, that I am no higher than an ape except by nature, and no moral law exists over this evolutionary spiral, and I create the good, and we socially create the good, I don't believe any of that junk in your Bible about God putting laws on human beings and calling us to live a certain way and damning us if we don't. I just think that's a lot of malarkey. And so this verse here just doesn't apply. It's not real. It's not true. Now, Paul knew that there were people who thought that way. And we know there are people who think that way. And so when Paul wrote this... And he said, they know. What did he mean? He meant, there is a knowing beneath consciousness. 
He had already said it in verse 18, where he said, they suppressed the truth of God in their unrighteousness. What he is arguing here is something unbelievably profound about human nature. Everybody you know, including yourself and everybody at your office and everybody in your family, your extended family, and everybody in your dormitory and in your classes, everybody knows God, that he's glorious, that he's beneficent, that he's eternal, and that he's powerful. And everybody knows that he has laws or standards or ordinances, and they know that to disobey them is worthy of death. Paul says, everybody knows that, and therefore, if they don't know that they know it, there is this reality called suppression. We might call it today repression. It is so innate, it is so spontaneous, it is so desired that we don't even know we're doing it as we push down out of our consciousness these awful thoughts that our chosen way of life might be out of sync with the living God who made us and will judge us. And so we, we push it down. And I would just commend to you, if this were a longer sermon, like an hour's worth, I wouldn't stop here, but I'll just commend to you the thoughts. What manner of diseases psychologically must result from that? What manner of torture must we put ourselves through as the truth of God is continually pushed down? We must work, we must exert energy, we must drown it with drink or shoot it up. Or we must work, 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 or watch videos and videos and videos and videos. We can't let ourselves think about ultimate reality and about our nature and about our God and about eternity. These realities are not in the newspaper, they're not in the magazines, they're not on the television. They are suppressed and we are sick because of it. Our nation is sick. Billions and billions and billions of dollars being spent on mental illnesses. Because we don't know God. Our whole lives are disoriented because we suppress what we know. We suppress what we know. Well, those are my three observations. Now, let me draw this toward a close by telling you how this bleak picture contains incredible hope for us and those we care about. Everybody you know knows God. And everybody you know knows His law in part. And everybody you know knows they deserve death from Him. That's amazing. It takes my breath away to say it. Just think of it. Just think of what they bring to your conversation. Charles Hodge, a century ago, taught at Princeton, wrote this sentence to capture it. The most reprobate sinner carries about within him a knowledge of his just exposure to the wrath of God. The most reprobate sinner carries about within him 
a knowledge of his just exposure to the wrath of God. Now, here's what I think this implies. We should come to everybody we care about in the dormitory, in the family, at the workplace, in the neighborhood, at school, with tremendous confidence that the starting point that we have with them is profound. The common ground we have is profound. I mean, we may look at them and say, I have nothing in common with this person. That's not true. They will say it's true. You will feel it's true. And I'm asking you this morning not to believe it's true. Because of verse 32 and verses 18 to 21. I'm asking you on the authority of the word of God to enter into relationships with unbelievers with a sense of confidence that God Almighty has spoken to you what they know. And let your heart well up with a sense of confidence that by prayer and by grace, God might be pleased to open their eyes to see what they know. Now think about this for a moment. I spent a lot of time yesterday just trying to process this in my head, what this would be like. Because if you're a person, picture yourself in this situation now. You may be a person in this room right now like this. And you hear somebody tell you, you know God, you know He's glorious, you know He's powerful, you know He's eternal. You know His law, and you know that the breaking of His law, which you have done, deserves death. You know all that. Picture what it would be like for that person to say, <laughs> You may say that I know that, but I don't feel like I know that. Now, what would have to happen, and what would the experience be like for that knowledge, which is way down here beneath consciousness, to move up? into consciousness. What would that be like? It wouldn't be suddenly him taking your word for it. That's not what it would be like. That would be you knowing and dumping it on him. That wouldn't be him knowing innately. It wouldn't be him taking the Bible and saying, well, people believe this for 2,000 years and God wrote it, so I'll believe it. It wouldn't be that. What would it be? Hodge, the same fellow, Charles Hodge, used the phrase, um, it would have a self-authenticating reality. In other words, suddenly or slowly, there would emerge in their minds this thought. How can there not be a God? How can it not be his, his will that I act differently than the way I act? How can I not be under his judgment? It will appear as axiomatic. Now, I thought of that word axiom. Because I was trying to, I'm groping for language here to describe what the phenomenon would be for knowledge to move from subconscious to conscious and yet not be dependent on me or the Bible. What would that be like? 
and the word self-evidencing comes to mind, and the word axiomatic comes to mind. Now, I looked up the word axiom in the dictionary, as I remembered it from geometry, right? The theorems and their axioms, and the axioms are the bottom, aren't they? You can't go beneath an axiom. I like the straightest point between, shortest distance between two points of a straight line, things like that. I'm not sure I've got it right, but I, I remember things like that. Like that. Axioms are the bottom. You don't get beneath an axiom. Nobody says, why is an axiom true? An axiom is an axiom. It's just self-evident. Then I noticed that in this text, in the Greek, axiom, according to the dictionary, comes from axios, worthy. And that's the word for they know that they are worthy of death. Axios. Which means that this worthiness of death is just self-evident. Now you may say, it's not to me, or it's not to them, but I am pleading with you to believe that it is, and that it will have a profound effect on the confidence with which you deal with unbelievers. That God himself has gone before you to every tribe, to every Muslim, to every Jewish person, to every friend, every family member. He's gone before you years before you ever get there. And he has written things on their heart. I exist and I'm glorious and I'm eternal and I'm powerful and I'm beneficent. And you owe me thanks and you owe me glory. And I have laws, and to break them is to be worthy of death. All of that's written before you ever get there. That is an awesome thought for evangelism, is it not? Because those are the first two points you try to persuade people of. There's a God, He's holy, and there is sin in you, and you're in trouble. Man, if God has already done the work, writing it on our heart, half our work is done. And therefore, the, the tact then would be, well, what do I say, and how do I pray to dredge it up? And of course, the answer is not, you don't need to say anything about those first two points. Because God may be pleased by the simple articulation of what is lying latent and unexpressed, will draw it out into consciousness. God the Holy Spirit may be pleased to use a simple statement of the truth that God says they know to waken them into consciousness. Yes, how could I not believe that? How could I resist that anymore? So let me just close by asking this, this question. Suppose you're talking to somebody, and you might be in this room, and I'm talking to you right now. Or you might have somebody in mind you're talk, going to talk to this week. Suppose you're talking to somebody, and uh, you share a little bit of this message with them. Uh, Romans 1.32, that uh, they know all this stuff. And they say, look, I don't believe in God. In fact, uh, what about Hurricane Mitch? Seems to me that... Uh, God deserves death, not me for him breaking my law rather than me breaking his law. So you can take your Christianity and go. What are you going to say to a person like that? Well, there, there are at least these things you can say. One, two, three, and then I'll close with the fourth one. The first thing you could do is go to Luke 13, where Jesus goes when they ask him, what about those people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell down in Nicaragua? And Jesus said, you are no less worthy of death 
than any of them was, and they were no more worthy of death than you are, and therefore, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That's one way Jesus responded. A second way you could go about it would be to go to the book of Job, and there you have Job suffering excruciating pain, and there are God's sovereignty and satanic secondary causes. And you could help people understand that while Satan may be involved in this world, battering the world in many ways, God maintains an overarching control so that he brings everything together under his sovereignty and governance to a good and righteous end for all who trust in him. That would be one possible way to respond. Or a third way to respond would be... Where is it? Yes. You could go straight to the cross and you could say, Now look, I don't have an answer to all the suffering in the world, but one thing I know, God sent his son into the world to bathe himself and clothe himself and wrap himself in that suffering and die an excruciating death so that all of us who suffer like that might have one who can empathize with us. And he has died for our sins so that if we believe in him, we not only pass through that suffering but out of it into everlasting Joy. You might say that. Those would be three possible responses. But here's the last one from verse 32 that I think would also be a a proper response. You would say, look, I know you don't believe these things and I know you don't think that you know them. But if you would perhaps humble yourself and pray and ask that God would remove the hindrances and the suppressive tactics that you might be unconsciously using, it might spring up in your heart so that without my authority and even without the Bible's authority, you would recognize there's a God and that you're a sinner. And if that should happen, could I just tell you the remedy? Because when that happens... You're going to want to know the remedy. And it suits the disease so perfectly. I want you to know it when it happens. And then you would say, not only is he God and glorious and eternal and powerful and beneficent with a law that means you're in trouble and deserving of death because you've disobeyed, but he sent his son, Jesus, into the world to die for our sins. And he rose again, triumphant over death. And for everybody who believes in him, he clothes us with righteousness, forgives all of our sins, gives us the Holy Spirit to help us make progress in our faith, and gives us the hope of everlasting life with him. When God is pleased to awaken you to your knowledge of him and your need for him, remember... Remember this gospel. We're surrounded by Muslim people that we care about. There are many Jews in this city that we care about, Jewish people. Neither Islam nor Judaism has a satisfying remedy for the knowledge in every one of them. Every Muslim... And every Jewish person knows there's a God and that they have broken his law and that they are deserving of death and 
what? There's no atonement. There is no covering for sin in Judaism or Islam. Before we even get there, God has taken us halfway to the solution. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray earnestly that you would make us a bold and confident, loving, gospel-sharing, earnestly praying people. As we reach out our arms to fold people into next Sunday's service, Lord, would you grant us courage and boldness that you have gone before us. You have done a work according to Romans 1.32 and Romans 1.18 to 21. You have done a work in writing upon the human heart that so goes beyond anything we could do that we should with tremendous confidence believe that by prayer this knowledge could be unearthed and brought axiomatically to their minds. So grant, O oh God, I pray that you would perform this through our loving, bold, confident, Bible-saturated, God-exalting, evangelistic labors among our, our family members and our school associates and our work associates and the nations of the world. Well, may the Lord anoint you this week with the kind of praying and the kind of courage that will be used by him to awaken out of many people what they already know, which will prove to be a perfect preparation for the gospel. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed.